Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Hello there, my fantastic listeners. I'm so happy you're here again to listen to me prattle on. I keep on doing this week after week, and yet you show up just to placate me. I did the thing and finished Atlantis, the antediluvian world, and while I learned some, I feel like I actually lost brain power on this book. Before I continue, I want to put out a clear disclaimer. I do not agree with Donnelly's views. Within this episode, I wanted to point out some of the paragraphs that anchored me the most. I understand that 1855 was a completely different time, but that does not give Donnelly a pass. I have a very hard time being scientifically convinced that skin color determines superiority. I know all of you have heard me rant about it, and I had to take this book into sizable chunks. Just like my other ancient sources, I did a background check on Donnelly and tried to paint him in the best possible light. This book single-handedly sparked the Atlantis fever that currently grips the world. He does deserve that credit even if it was politically and religiously motivated. While we're on the subject of religion, I've made a reference to the Abraham God that was not meant to offend, though it probably will. I am absolutely, completely, head over heels in love with these ancient stories. I love learning about them and hearing about them, but I just can't force myself to believe that it's true. I love the stories about the Abrahamic God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, depending on if you want the Latinized version of his name or the original Hebrew. I am in no way trying to discredit anyone's beliefs. I think that belief can be something beautiful and wonderful, just as it can be hurtful and hateful. I am in no way trying to challenge people's deeply held beliefs. I love you all. And thank you so much for your support for this half a year. This is episode 31, and I can only think of a few more episodes to add to this podcast. I still want to do a deep dive into theories like the Rashat structure, the Canary Islands, the mudflats of Spain, the Azores Islands, and the Bimini Road. I guess I could bring up Florida, as I have been surprised by how many people actually believe that Atlantis was in America, and the plane was Florida. Without further delay, I have linked Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, in my episode description. Ignatius Loyola Donnelly was the father of alternative history. He lived from 1831 to 1901 CE. His parents emigrated to America from Ireland and was raised a devout Catholic. During his youth, he was persecuted for being an Irish Catholic immigrant. He served three terms in the Senate representing Minnesota. In 1855, he started his career in the House of Representatives as a Democrat and rallied against the Whig Party and their anti-Catholic and anti-immigration notions. John C. Breckinridge was a Democrat politician who represented Kentucky and took a state's rights position against the interference with slavery. He and Donnelly became friends, and Donnelly quickly changed his mind on his policy. Donnelly switched parties to the Republican Party and got married. 
and moved to Minnesota from Philadelphia. Donnelly lost all of his money during the financial collapse of 1857. Donnelly looked to create the ideal egalitarian Western society. In this small town of Minnesota, where farms and businesses could coexist in a sort of self-sustaining utopia. Sadly, most of his clients had to leave due to this financial collapse. Eventually, Donnelly came to the conclusion that free labor was the only way to the promised society of the Founding Fathers. In 1859, as now part of the abolitionist movement, Donnelly wrote the following, Laboring men of the old world, you are many of you at the foot of the ladder, which all mankind are compelled to climb. You are clamoring the rungs, which the overthrow of the old world's aristocratic notions has left upon you. Which party will hold you up? That which stands committed to the South in slavery? That which would reduce and has reduced labor to the degradation of bondage? Which presents to it no destiny but shame and humiliation? Or that party, with which no dark record in the past, with no principle but those with the Declaration of Independence has set forth, with equality, liberty, humanity for all men, strives by doing the unalterable justice to the black, to advance the dignity and promote the welfare of the white race. He won the Lieutenant Governorship of Minnesota. Donnelly gained the reputation of being a fiery promoter of the common man. He advocated for the financial assistance for the farmer who had been affected by the financial panic of 1857. In 1860, Donnelly campaigned for Abraham Lincoln and supported everything Lincoln advocated for. After the assassination of Lincoln, Donnelly eventually became frustrated with the Republican Party as they were starting to embrace big business. Donnelly was accused of taking a bribe from the railroad company, and while it wasn't money, it was stock in the company. Donnelly took to the floor of the House of Representatives and delivered an hour-long speech that ended like this. If there be one character which, while blotched and spotted all over, yet raves and rants and blackguards like a prostitute, if there be one bold, bad, empty, bellowing demagogue, it is the gentleman from Illinois. That gentleman from Illinois had publicly accused Donnelly of taking a bribe. After this speech, he lost his seat and ran the next campaign as an independent. He ended up splitting the Republican vote, allowing for a Democratic incumbent to win the seats. Donnelly never served in government again, though not without trying. In 1891, an article was written about Donnelly that went like this. He had been driven out of the public life by the corrupt power of money. His crops had been devoured by corporations and grasshoppers. He was covered with debts to the eyelids. Instead of taking to drinks to drown his sorrows, or going out and hanging himself, as some men would have done under similar circumstances, he retired to the shade of Ninninger in Minnesota. And there, in the midst of the arctic cold and deep snows of a very severe winter, with the sheriff or the constable banging every day or two at the door to serve summons or execution, he sat quietly down to recreate the history of man before the deluge. He wrote, Atlantis. 
A year after Atlantis, he published Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel, in which he expounded his belief that the Flood, as well as the destruction of Atlantis and the extinction of the Mammoth, had been brought about by a near collision of the Earth with a massive comet. In 1888, he published The Great Cryptogram, in which he proposed that Shakespeare's plays had been written by Francis Bacon, an idea that was popular during the late 19th and early 20th century. Caesar's Column, which at that time was actually pronounced Kaiser, but we will continue on with the narrative. Caesar's Column was a novel about a man who comes from his rural environment to the heart of a brutal capitalist oligarchy, and he sees its corruption firsthand and witnesses its destruction. Donnelly's novel partly concerns the debated question of the alleged anti-Semitism of the populist movement. Donnelly's villain is an Italian Jew, but his protagonist has a name, Weltenstein. That must have suggested a Jewish identity to many readers. Dr. Hewitt was another novel that Donnelly wrote where a rich white southerner switches bodies with a poor black southerner. It seemed a bit like Eddie Murphy's Trading Places, only they switched bodies too. Now, Donnelly states very clearly in his book that for Atlantis, the antediluvian world, he claims that the following must be true. 1. There existed in the Atlantic Ocean, opposite of the Mediterranean Sea, a large island, which was the remnant of an Atlantic continent, known to the ancients as Atlantis. 2. That the description of this island given by Plato is not a fable, as has been long supposed, but veritable history. 3. That Atlantis was the region where man first rose from the state of barbarism to civilization. 4. That it became, in the course of ages, a populous and mighty nation, from those whose immigrants the shores of Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, the Pacific coast of South America, the Mediterranean, the west coast of Europe and Africa, the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the Caspian were populated by civilized nations. 5. That it was the true antediluvian world, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Hesperides, the Elysian Fields, the Gardens of Alignatius, the Mesophalios, the Olympos, the Asgard of traditions of the ancient nations, that it represented a universal memory of a great land where early mankind dwelt for ages in peace and happiness. 6. That the gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Hindus, and the Scandinavians were simply the kings, queens, and heroes of Atlantis, and that the acts attributed to them in mythology are confused recollection of real historical events. 7. That the mythology of Egypt and Peru represented the original religion of Atlantis, which was sun worship. 
8 that the oldest colony formed by Atlantis was probably Egypt, whose civilization was a reproduction of that Atlantic island. 9. That the implements of the Bronze Age of Europe were derived from Atlantis. The Atlanteans were also the first manufacturers of iron. 10. That the Phoenician alphabet, parent of all the European alphabets, was derived from an Atlantis alphabet, which was conveyed by them from Atlantis to the Mayans of Central America. 11. That Atlantis was the original seat of the Aryan or Indo-European family of nations, as well as the Semitic peoples and possibly also the Turanian races. 12. That Atlantis perished in a terrible convolution of nature, in which the whole island sunk into the ocean with nearly all of its inhabitants. 13. That a few persons escaped in ships and on rafts, and carried to the nations east and west the tidings of the appalling catastrophe which has survived to our own time in the flood and deluge legends of the different nations of the old and new worlds. In the sequel, Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel, Donnelly states the following. 1. That an enormous comet hit the earth 12,000 years ago resulting in widespread fires, floods, poisonous gases, and unusually vicious and prolonged winters. 2. That the catastrophe destroyed a more advanced civilization, forcing its terrified population to seek shelters in caves. 3. As cave dwellers, they lost all knowledge of art, literature, music, philosophy, and engineering. Personally, the following statements are what made me dismiss Donnelly as a legitimate myth-historist. I'm trademarking that term, that's mythology and history all combined. Just kidding. Anyway, here's Donnelly. Here we have two, the four quarters of Atlantis, divided by four rivers, as we shall see a little further on, represented in a dance, where the dancers arrange themselves according to the four cardinal points of a compass. The dancers are painted to represent the black and red races, while the first and only man represents the white race. And the name of the dance is reminiscence of Baal, the ancient god of the races derived from Atlantis. The Bible tells us, in an earlier age before their destruction, mankind had dwelt in a happy, peaceful, sinless condition in the Garden of Eden. Plato tells us the same thing of the earlier ages of the Atlanteans. In both the Bible history and Plato's story of the destruction of the people was largely caused by the intermarriage of the superior or divine race, the quote-unquote sons of God, with an inferior stock of the quote-unquote children of men, whereby they were degraded and rendered wicked. It is now conceded by scholars that the genealogical table given in the Bible was not intended to include the true Negro races or the Chinese, or the Japanese, the Finns or the Laps, the Australians or the American Redmen. It refers altogether to the Mediterranean races, the Aryans, the Cushites, the Phoenicians, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians. The quote-unquote sons of Ham were not true Negroes, but the dark brown races. If these races, the Chinese, Australians, Americans, etc., 
are not descendant from Noah, they could not have been included in the deluge. If neither China, Japan, America, North Europe, nor Australia were depopulated by the deluge, the deluge could not have been universal. But, as it is alleged, it did destroy a country and drowned all the people thereof except Noah and his family. The countries so destroyed could not have been Europe, Asia, Africa, America, or Australia, for there has been no universal destruction of the people of those regions. Or, if there had been, how can we account for the existence today of people on all those continents whose descent Genesis does not trace back to Noah, and, in fact, about whom the writer of the Genesis seems to have known nothing? We are thus driven to one of two alternative conclusions. Either the deluge records of the Bible is either altogether fabulous, or it relates to some other land other than Europe, Asia, Africa, or Australia, some land that was destroyed by water. It is not fabulous, and the land referred to is not Europe, Asia, or Africa, or Australia, but Atlantis. No other land is known to history or tradition that was overthrown in a great catastrophe by the agencies of water. It was civilized, populous, powerful, and given over to wickedness. Here we note that they looked towards the rising sun, towards Atlantis, for the original home of their race, that it was this region governed by the whole world that it contained white people, who were the first subject race, but who subsequently rebelled and acquired dominion over the dark races. We will see reason hereafter to conclude that Atlantis has a composite population and that the rebellion of the Titans in Greek mythology was actually the rising up of a subject population. Among the Mandan Indians, we not only find flood legends, but more remarkable still, we find an age of the Ark preserved from generation to generation and as a religious ceremony performed, which refers plainly to the destruction of Atlantis and the arrival of one of those who escaped from the flood, bringing the dreadful tidings of the disaster. It must be remembered, as we will show hereafter, that many of these Mandan Indians were white men, with hazel, gray, and blue eyes, and all shades of color of the hair from black to pure white, that they dwelt in houses, in fortified towns, in manufactured earthenware pots in which they could boil water, an art unknown to the ordinary Indians who boiled water by putting heated stones into it. The Fulas, Filubi, Fulani, Filita, are a people of West and Central Africa. It is the opinion of modern travelers that the Fulas are destined to become the dominant people of Negroland. In language, appearance, and history, they represent striking differences from the neighboring tribes, to whom they are superior in intelligence but inferior according to Garth and physical development. Golbery describes them as robust and courageous of reddish-black color, with regular features, hair longer, and less woolly than that of the common Negroes, and high mental capacity. Dr. Barth found a great local differences in their physical characteristics, as Bowen describes in the Fulas of Bomba, as being some black, some almost white, and many of mulatto color, varying from dark to very bright. Their features and skulls were cast in the European mold. 
They have a tradition that their ancestors were whites and that certain tribes called themselves white men. They came from Timbuktu, which lies to the north of their present location. Antediluvian means before the flood and implying that it is before the great flood. Donnelly also suggests that the Iron Age, God, Yahweh, was somehow relevant during or before the Bronze Age, and that the flood that Atlantis was sunk in was the flood of Noah, Duclean, Dardanus, Lycaon, and Gilgamesh. He makes reference to the Garden of Eden being the Garden of the Hesperides. It's clear that from the Bible, the Garden of Eden has an exact location, and that is not just a mythical location. The location is associated with four rivers that are mentioned in the biblical text. These are the Euphrates, the Tigris, Pison, and Gihon. The Tigris and Euphrates are, are two well-known rivers that still flow through Iraq today. In the Bible, they are said to have flowed through Assyria, namely today's Iraq. The Garden of the Hesperides was located to the setting sun by the Titan Atlas, which to those who have been listening well know where the Garden of the Hesperides should be located. Donnelly points on linguistically the four corners of the world having the same core to the language must have come from a common ancestor, and that had to be Atlantis. Today, Proto-European language has been found to originate near the Black Sea, by Turkey. I've mentioned this a time and two before, but it keeps nagging at me at the back of my mind like a missing piece to the puzzle. I'm not quite sure if he and others think that this great flood happened 9,000 years ago too, or not. I think so, but in our text we can almost pinpoint this great flood to roughly 1550 BCE or around the time of the Thera explosion. I plan on doing an episode on the Great Flood soon. Furthermore, there is no evidence of a comet hitting the Earth 12,000 years ago. There is no mention of a comet in from Plato's texts. Donnelly uses other authors' work to imply the Atlanteans were of a white race and thus more advanced and chosen to be the ruler of other races. This sentiment has kicked off over a hundred years of division and bigotry. Nowhere in Plato's works does it say that. Poseidon's physical appearance portrays him with long flowing blue hair and brown skin. The skin color was commonly depicted as brown amongst men and fair amongst women, presumably because the women were working indoors whereas the men had exposure to the sun. The ancient Greeks didn't care much about the skin color as modern humans do. The ancient Greeks didn't see people as black, but having burnt skin by the sun. Donnelly places Atlantis as the Azores Islands in the middle of the Atlantic. He fails to address how all those people came across the ocean in 1,200 ships. He claims that most of the inhabitants of Atlantis were destroyed, but some survivors took off by raft or boat to reach America, Egypt, Crete, Attica, and the Levant. Donnelly tries to tie all of the brown people's achievements to his invented master race. It is interesting how he doesn't seem to address the Eastern cultures such as Hinduism or Buddhism. 
Donnelly seems to focus most of his attention on the Mediterranean cultures and American cultures. He tries to prove some transatlantic similarities using pseudoscience and conjecture. We already know that if there were some transatlantic trade going on, there would be tomatoes in the Mediterranean, or at minimum cocaine. Drugs sell now, and they were desired in the past as well. My summation of his book is that it's deeply racist and probably set back human progression by a hundred years. Following this book, we have seen the rise of Hitler, KKK, and Christian nationalism. Donnelly tries very hard to tie his Christian beliefs into Atlantis. While this book may have sparked interest in Plato's work, it ultimately has caused more harm and division than good. The father of alternative history could also be called the father of alternative facts. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Anyway, Poseidon and Apollo tried to oust Zeus from heaven and failed, so he punished them by stripping them of their godhood and sent them to build the walls of Troy for King Lamedon. Lamedon and human Poseidon and Apollo agreed to a staggering amount to build this wall, but once Poseidon was done, Lamedon gave him an itemized receipt of overpriced accommodations that human Poseidon had incurred whilst building this wall. It was said to have been 30 feet high and 10 feet thick. Because of Lamedon's shrewdness, Poseidon promised revenge and sent Heracles to eventually destroy those walls. He came with six ships and probably defeated the Amazons during that time as well. He also killed every potential leader of Troy except for the youngest child, Podroclus. When negotiating for the release of his sister, Hesanine, Podroclus offered the Golden Veil of Aphrodite, lending his name Priam, which means to buy in ancient Greek. 